Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cupper. I'm John Perry. And today we're asking the question, is basic income part of our future and should it be? So today we are joined by Scott Santins. He's a basic income advocate and article writer on that topic. He's recently infiltrated my RSS feed with articles like self-driving trucks are going to hit us like a human-driven truck, which I thought was a good title. Uh, <laughs> he's also the moderator of the Basic Income subreddit. So, Scott, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Why don't you just give us your quick, concise version of what basic income is? Sure. Uh, basic income is a, an amount of money given unconditionally on the individual level without any strings attached, so you don't have to work uh, to get it. It's separate from work. And it's sufficient to cover your most basic needs. Uh, we're talking about, you know, food and rent, clothing, these kind of things. So the amount I like to talk about is about $1,000 a month here uh, in the U.S. as a starting point, because that's built around the uh, current federal poverty guidelines. Uh, it's like $11,770 is the poverty level for one person. And then it goes up for each additional person in the household. It's around $4,000. So I also call for a $300 per month, basically a child partial basic income. But it's an amount for kids as well, so that no matter the size of the household, everyone stays above the poverty line. Now, since this is a futurist podcast, let's quickly tie this into futurism, because this idea obviously is pretty old. And people have talked about this as a means of dealing with poverty for, for a while now. And so I think it comes up a lot in futurist circles recently because of people being concerned about automation. And so I tried to trace where the origins of that version of the basic income argument were. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but are you aware of this person named Robert Theobald? Oh, sure. Yeah. He seemed to be like the first person that I could find. He was in the 60s discussing basic income as a way to deal with automation displacing jobs. Does that sound correct? Yeah, yeah. And there's this great video. It's a, it's a YouTube, well, it's a, it's a talk uh, by Alan Watts. I actually uh, wrote up a transcript of it, and you can uh, find that on my blog, and you listen to the, the audio of it. And uh, in it, Alan Watts, he was talking about the same thing, saying that as the technology takes over uh, jobs, uh, you know, we're going to need some form of uh, income in order to pay for what our technology is producing. And he actually refers to Theobald. Um, so yeah, it could be the origin of the, the technological form of it, sure. Are you concerned about technological unemployment yourself? Are you in that camp of people that finds that to be a serious threat and a reason well, to do this now? I actually, I, I look at this differently uh, than I think uh, more than a few people do is, is I, I don't feel, there's not a fear. And some people got that out of my article about self-driving trucks too, is they even could have interpreted my article as saying that we shouldn't have self-driving trucks or that, you know, uh, it's going to be a doomed scenario. And what I'm trying to say is that as we eliminate jobs, toiling jobs, jobs we don't necessarily want, then this should be a good thing. We should actually be excited about this. Right. We should all benefit from it. And so we should be looking to the elimination of jobs as freeing us, except the problem is, of course, is that as long as income is tied to work uh, in the labor market, then we're not going to be better off because jobs are the only way to get income. Yeah, Ted and I are completely on board with the notion that, you know, we should not try to stop technological progress 
I guess what I meant is you you do buy the argument that we're going to be displacing jobs in sufficient numbers that we would need to prop up our system by oh, giving sure. people another meat. Because that's not everybody accepts that, of course. No, no. Yeah. If that weren't the case, would you still be in favor of basic income? Because it seems like there's reasons to adopt it just from this perspective of social policy. Yes, there have long existed reasons to do this. I would say even to the very beginnings of the creation of our uh, private property system. And this is what Carl Weiderquist talks about in his studies and his uh, books. And he looks at it as saying, okay, well, when we actually drew the first borders, let's say around property, and, you know, people called this theirs, then, you know, that was in the commons. It was something that everybody could access until someone decided to make it theirs. You know, everybody else loses access to that. They actually effectively own less of everything because someone decided to own it themselves. So the logic goes is that with private property, with the existence of private property, that uh, there should be some form of compensation back into the commons. And so that is in itself, I think, a, a good argument for the existence of a basic income as being a compensation for the lost parts of the commons. Right. Well, and I think a less radical justification could be just that it's a more efficient manner of distributing aid than the more controlling means-tested systems that we currently use. Yes, yes. If we're going to look at what we're doing right now, and then we look at basic income, it's definitely, it's much more efficient. And not only is it more efficient, but there's so much more that can happen from it. There's a blog post I like to talk about. It's called There's No Charity for Power Saws from the charity Give Directly. And Give Directly is a charity that specifically gives cash only to the poor in Uganda and Kenya. It's it's effectively basic income amounts. Uh, they're learning a lot from this. And Part of this is just the, the creativity involved in just giving people cash. We like to you know, make decisions for other people. We say, you should actually be paying for food. I'm going to give you money for food, and I'm going to give you food stamps because you should only be using it for food. But then with cash, you can use it for anything. So let's say someone wants to you know, eat ramen for a month because they would rather use the rest of the money from that for, say, uh, something to start up their own business. And and that's actually what we're seeing where basic income has been tried and even unconditional cash transfers is that people actually use this money to self-employ themselves in actually very large numbers. Uh, in the Namibia basic income pilot, uh, self-employment went up 301%. It's huge numbers for me. It's very surprising. You can see the same thing. There was, I think it was in Kenya where they gave cash uh, and they actually, they did it specifically for food. It, they thought that they would actually just use it for food. And they were surprised that years down the road, 90% of the people had used it to uh, start up their own businesses or to invest in a capital, you know, in the form of say livestock. Right. So one thing that's interesting here is that, you know, people can be trusted, I think, uh, to make choices that are good for them. And that they maybe know that better than a well-meaning charity or a government group is going to be able to know. Right. But also this is kind of interesting to me if you think about it in the context of growing technological unemployment, right? So if we're worried that in the future it's going to be harder to start businesses that make you money because more things will be ephemeralized and therefore not worth money, how does this work in that world? Is this power of basic income as an anti-poverty tool 
is it undermined by the fact that technology is going to make it harder to find meaningful ways of making money? Yeah, well, so people will say this on the other side, saying that we don't have to worry about anything because technology will drive down prices. You know, let, let's not worry about this stuff because everything will cost less. So we don't need a basic income. Well, of course, that's I mean, I believe that's factually wrong. If you look at just the, the past decades, prices and stuff, we're still paying about the same thing for food. We're still paying the same thing for rent. Right. Those things haven't been dematerialized at all. So, of course, they're maintaining the same scarcity they had before. Right. Food and right. and land aren't uh, nobody's living in virtual houses yet. And nobody's eating virtual food. Right. So we're going to we're going to need income. But but then when you look at this, too, it's like, yeah, we need income. Uh, but on the other side, too, we will be able that income will go further and further. Like we'll be able to use this basic income to more empower ourselves. We've already seen this with even like starting up with podcasts. This is not something that we could do decades ago. But now it's something where if you have a computer and you can actually purchase some uh, initial equipment and uh, you can get into it, you can actually turn that into a revenue stream. Uh, that's something that that is a newer possibility. And we're going to see more possibilities like that, I feel, with uh, advanced technology. So people will be able to earn uh, additional income in new ways, but they definitely need a floor because it's going to be harder to earn any income at all, period. Right. So this is this is about establishing a floor. I think that's a good way to put it. And, you know, again, we have social safety net programs already, but this is perhaps the most streamlined and perhaps honestly the most libertarian version of a system right. for providing a social safety net in that it doesn't dictate how people should use their aid. But let's talk about how to pay for this thing, right? Because I know you've crunched some numbers on this in terms of determining what it would cost and how you could pay for it. Do you want to get into those details? Yeah, sure. Uh, but first of all, I just wanted to touch on what you were just talking about, how it's a replacement of the welfare state. And I just want to mention how um, our welfare state doesn't actually do as good of a job as people think it does. Uh, like if you look at, say, housing assistance, for every four people who qualifies for housing assistance, one person gets it. So you're looking at a 25% assistance ratio of the people that should be getting help but don't. You can see the same thing with food stamps. You know, there's so many people that qualify for food stamps that don't get it. There's a stigma attached to it. When it comes to temporary assistance for needy families, which we read classically uh, referred to as welfare, that's basically welfare in the program now, it varies from state to state. And like Wyoming is a great example of how they get this money from the federal government to give to those people living in poverty in the state of Wyoming. And 1% of the people living in poverty in the state of Wyoming get TAMP. So you're looking, it's like a lottery system where you have a 1% chance of winning. And that's the way that, that's the system we have right now. And I think that's a, a complete and utter failure. A system with so many holes cannot really be referred to as a safety net of any kind. It's It's just like, like a lottery system. You, you may get it and you may not. So with costs, uh, I just want to set this up first. I, I like people to think about how much we can save. This is something you need to keep in mind in any cost uh, discussion. I've looked at, say, the costs of child poverty is around $1 trillion a year here in the U.S., total cost of child poverty, uh, total cost of crime, 
is around $1.4 trillion. So what do those costs entail? What are we talking about? Let's put a little bit of a face on those numbers. Like what, what social costs are we paying out for as a result of child poverty, say? A part of the cost of child poverty is a cost of crime. These are people that would not have otherwise been in the criminal justice system. So we're spending money on this. Okay. So the high cost of the criminal justice system, right? That's something we can understand. Yeah. Another another part is uh, like lost wages. Uh, so you know how if someone gets into the criminal justice system to, uh, you know, they're not going to have as high of earnings uh, in their lives because it's harder to, you can't get the same job opportunities that you could before. So as soon as you get in there, it's difficult. And then there's the costs of poverty, even like mentally, there's a, a tax, a, a mental tax. So we're thinking there's like reduced potential of these kids, basically, because they're, you know, they're in poverty, they're not getting the same opportunities to grow and learn and become profitable persons. Is that the idea? That's part of it. Yeah. But also, I mean, there's so much less uh, social mobility, too. If you're born into poverty, you're much more likely to stay in poverty it's very difficult to climb up out of it because there's no floor. So again, mm-hmm. you know, it's it, by just by having a floor, you start where you need to start, which is above poverty, because being in poverty is so difficult to get out of. Sure, but it's it's not as if uh, m- mobility has this sort of cutoff, right? Where like uh, people who are born just above the poverty line have a much better chance than people who are born below it of transcending their their class, right? I mean, isn't social mobility just basically low in the United States, regardless of of exactly where you start out? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, social mobility is uh, really actually getting quite problematic in, in the U.S. So I agree with that. Even if you if you start at the bottom quintile, you know, you're more likely to stay in the bottom quintile. If you start in the middle quintile, you're more likely to stay in the middle quintile. If you start in the higher quintile, you're more likely to stay in the higher quintile. So it, it's not just about the bottom that's difficult to get out of. It's just, yeah, in, in general, it's more like a rigged game in many ways. It's, it's difficult to change your, your life circumstances of birth in the system that we have right now. Right. Well, and I, th- I think that's absolutely right. And unless we're talking about, you know, really wide ranging policies to try to address that, we have to kind of assume that's going to be the way things go moving forward. I like the idea of basic income because it just improves the lives of those at the bottom, you know, so much compared to what they're getting. So let's go back into, you know, how do we pay for this? So like, you know, assuming the the program that you're talking about, getting people to just barely at the federal poverty line uh, as an absolute floor with the $1,000 uh, a month uh, basic income, what do you think it would take to pay for that? Assuming that we more or less dismantle our, our existing system in order to pay for it. And then I assume we have to add more money on top of that, right? Right. So uh, the, the numbers that I've done is that the cost of the program that I would recommend to start off with a poverty level based income as an income floor for everybody sure. would be about $3 trillion. And we could eliminate about half of that by eliminating our welfare programs, by partially uh, shifting some of the funds from pensions, social security, by eliminating some existing subsidies that no longer need to exist with basic income, uh, you can get that down to $1.5 trillion. So that's the cost that you're looking at. That's the price tag that I like to talk about. And when you look at that price tag, again, if we're looking at the other price tag of what we're doing right now, 
when you're talking about a trillion dollars a year for child poverty, $1.4 trillion a year for crime, and even the cost of our healthcare system, which is you know over $3 trillion a year, you're looking at over $5 trillion that we're spending right now that will be reduced with basic income. So the question then becomes, will it be reduced by $1.5 trillion? And I think it actually will. So if you actually reduce it, let's say one point six trillion dollars per year, then that means with basic income, we're actually saving a hundred billion dollars a year. As a society, right? As as a society, yes. Yeah. And I think you can obviously see that some people would say, yeah, but you know, who in the society is putting those bills, right? Because right now the cost to society from child poverty and, and from our healthcare system are born pretty broadly by the government, which is funded by by all of us and and by uh, a lot of individuals, some of whom can't really afford to be uh, supporting this stuff. And if we switch it to a, a system where we're taxing, then we're taxing somebody. We're taxing rich companies or, or rich people, or, or maybe it's a broad-based tax or whatever it is. So, But people don't see what they're paying right now. Like, like let's say with, uh, you know, with healthcare, we're paying it in the form of our higher premiums. So if, if so many people weren't going into the healthcare system, if we had reduced costs, because poverty actually does cause a lot of this. So if our health improved as a nation, then the costs of premiums could go down. It's like every premium has a poverty tax attached to it that we don't see that way because we're just paying it. And we see that with like, um, you know, the money that goes to prisons and the criminal justice system. You know, how do we pay for that? Well, people are taxed for it. Let's say with property taxes can go to that. Sure. And so people are paying in higher property taxes than they would if crime was lower. So we are paying these in the form of taxes and in the form of the um, costs that we share. And we could actually lower those. So if you raise taxes on people to pay for those things, and again, I think it's most important that we want to focus any properly designed program on raising taxes on those at the very top, because that's where all of this money has accumulated and there's a massive inequality that exists now. And we don't want to raise taxes on the bottom 80% of the population. So we want to design a program that actually lowers taxes for most everybody and raises taxes only at the top. And we don't actually have to do that with income taxes either. Uh, you know, we could actually come up with other forms of taxation that would function in that way. Like um, I like to talk about a carbon fee and dividend, a, uh, a land value tax, uh, financial transaction tax. I mean, there are, are different tools at our disposal such that we could actually even lower the income taxes for the top 20 percent as well. We just have to make sure to increase taxation in other ways that's in a progressive manner that's targeting mostly the top. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And a land value tax in particular is a really good idea that I've heard about before. It's really hard to tax, obviously, the richest people because they have the most resources to hide their money with. And this is a constant sort of arms race that we have in our society where the government comes up with a way around the latest trick and then they come up with a new trick. And uh, right. but, but yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's a, a noble goal for sure. Uh, and 1.5 trillion actually does not sound like that big of a hole to plug when you talk about our total budget as a country. It's about 8.5% of GDP. It's it's not a, a huge number to conquer as a as a country. And you know, we certainly used to have higher tax rates and you know, there are ways of going about this like you know, with a land value tax. It makes it difficult to get out of that tax because you right. own property. 
And so, you know, the only way to get out of it is to either sell the property or, you know, because that property exists, because it's really hard to hide it. Well, it's also very hard to fake the value of the property, which is the real innovation there, right? right? Like, because yeah. it's based on, you know, the unimproved value of the land, which which you can more or less get from your neighbors, whether or not you cooperate. So it's, right. I mean, that's just a really good design. I'm sure they've come up with something, but uh, <laughs> it's a good design to start with uh, for, for a tax that actually uh, gets people who've got the means and, and makes them pay. Another way that we can do this is the way that Alaska does it as well, which is another brilliant way of going about it. So the, the way Alaska does it is uh, you know, the oil companies have to pay a percentage of their fees. Uh, basically, it's like an advance. They're paying rent for the land. They're paying uh, for access to the land. And so this money, which is about 25 percent, goes into uh, a Alaska permanent fund. And that fund has been growing since 1982. And this fund is invested into the markets and this fund has a dividend and the, this dividend is shared with all residents of Alaska. So the most recent dividend was just about $2,000 last year. And this has been growing, it's, it fluctuates, but um, for the most part, this has been a partial based income for the state of Alaska. And this is something that the oil companies can't get out of right. because they are paying Alaska for the right to drill in the land. So it's not a tax. They're paying up front. And that's something if we if we make companies pay up front, then there's no avoiding it. They, they are agreeing to the cost. This is a very capitalistic way of going about it. They're saying, yes, I agree to your terms. Here's your money. And let's do business. Well, except that that relies upon the fact that they're getting a natural resource out of the ground that exists in a particular location, right? So you couldn't right. transport that model to all types of industries. Right. Now, this is a resource extraction model. Also, the thing about this model is that it relies on the government to set a price well with no market signals. So, for example, if they set the price too low, uh, let's say there's a little bit of corruption in the state house one weekend, and the oil companies get them to set too low a price, that becomes a state law at that point. And it's very hard to change. And they can then be extracting and making a lot more money than they had anticipated, potentially. Let's say the price of oil triples. That's not impossible. And and the people of Alaska would be screwed in that case. Now, so far, it seems like Alaska actually did a great job. So I'm not, I'm not impunging on their efforts. But it, it, that model is tricky because you've got no signal coming from the market telling you how much it's worth. Whereas if something is a percentage, then you have a constant stream of signals telling you, oh, well, they're making this much on oil, they should be paying this much. Of course, the problem with that is then getting them to be honest. So on both sides, I think there's there's potential for trouble. But the other thing that's really interesting about that particular model, which you brought up, and I want to emphasize, is that that money doesn't go, it's not a fee that gets directly paid to people. The money goes into a fund, which is invested in the market, which is itself a positive feedback situation where it's, it's, in, it's putting investment into the market system, where that's not just going to grow the fund, that's going to grow the market. True, yeah. And again, the reason for the fund itself was they, they recognized that oil is a natural and limited resource. It's a shared patrimony of the people up there. And they wanted to encourage people to move to Alaska, which is, of course, underpopulated. And this has been a really smart 
policy for them to do those things? Yeah, for multiple reasons. Again, the, the fund itself is basically a cash form. Uh, it's like converting oil to cash in a way that's uh, it's it makes it sustainable because by having a giant fund, then you're always going to be earning dividends from it. There's always going to be revenue generated from it, whereas with oil, it's going to run out. So that was in itself smart. Another reason that was smart, it's pretty genius, and this was that uh, – Again, because there's more libertarian up there with their thinking, they were thinking, okay, we don't want our politicians to access the fund. Like this, <laughs> right? It, right. This is something that. that needs to last, and it needs to not be dipped into by by politician hands. So, by giving people a dividend, it created this incentive from the people to say we don't want you to remove anything from this fund because if you do, we're going to get a smaller dividend. <laughs> so the result of this was that politicians actually put money into the fund that they can to increase it more because people want higher dividends. They can get more popular that way. Right. Sarah Palin even did that. She provided the highest so far uh, payout with a, with a bonus one year. And it's funny how she didn't really – try to sell that in her uh, going around talking to people about you know everything that she did, but she should have actually sold that more. She should have said, hey, I actually believe in giving everybody a small amount of cash you know, every year because that would have been very popular. But the thing is in Alaska, that has actually functioned as a way to bring people into politics. Uh, they actually will vote in high numbers. If, if there's anything related to the <laughs> dividend, like 80% of the people will go and vote. And that those numbers are unheard of here uh, for most other elections. I mean, people are coming right. and voting in like 40% numbers or right, less. Right, right. I talked to some people about here in LA City, some of our city elections get like 12% turnout. And uh, I was talking to some people about ways to improve uh, turnout. And they've gone to straight up paying people to vote in some places uh, where they literally will give you a, a payment when you show up to the to the voting place. And of course, that works. So this Alaska model is fascinating, right? But can this really be transported to like, say you're you're in Louisiana and, and, and we're in uh, California? There's natural resources everywhere, though. I mean, whether it's water or, you know, Air. various extractions. So you just design it around whatever natural resources are present. There's a, there's a very interesting paper that uh, I link to a lot from Gary Flomenhoft. And he did, he, he wanted to look at this. He wanted to say, okay, what if we exported the Alaska model to other states? And what if you did it to a quote resource poor state? So he looked at Vermont. So he said, okay, well, we don't have a lot of oil here, but what could we use to do that in Vermont? And sure, you look at uh, you look at water, uh, you look at land value, you look at forests, you look at the air. Uh, you can even look at. Uh, so when you mean say the air, do you mean paying to pollute the air? Is that what you're talking about? Or yeah, okay. yeah, Got yes, it. because the Got air it. is a commons. Because right, because so, you don't need to can air and sell it to people. <laughs> I was just I was just trying to make sure I understood. I mean, the air about. might be nice in Vermont. You know, <laughs> it is nice there. I've been there. Yeah. Yeah, so I've read before how uh, you know the the cost to us that we're that we're not paying right now, but we are. It's like a hidden cost is that we're paying about forty dollars uh, per gallon. Uh, you know, when it comes to the pollution of the air. So it, if we if we were actually to make people pay an additional forty dollars per barrel or whatever, then suddenly it's it's actually we're at zero because. They basically owed us that before, and they're not paying it. 
So there is definitely a great argument for a carbon tax at least $40 per ton. Sure. Um, We're doing that here in California. We have a a cap and trade scheme and it's paying among other things for our high speed rail that we're building. <laughs> right. But you, you could do that and you could actually, you know, that could be part of this going into the fund. So you could actually create uh, a lot of different forms going to this fund. And uh, the Vermont report that this looked at this, the conservative estimate was as similar to the Alaska fund. So people would be getting, uh, I believe it was around $2,000 a year. Now on the high estimate, this is fascinating, is that if uh, they were able to actually max out everything and actually charge a lot for this stuff, then you're looking at around $10,000 a year in Vermont for people. So that's... Well, that's a, very close that's, then that's to... That's income, yeah. Yeah, that's very close then to the number you're talking about, which is around twelve grand a year. So I have to say that strikes me as much more politically feasible in America, where there's a lot of, I think, just political resistance to the idea of giving people money as a handout. But uh, if we're all participating in an investment scheme together, why that sounds quite American to me, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. People should actually see this, these common resources as being partially owned by them. It, either everybody or nobody owns the air. But either way, it's not right that only you know a certain group of people uh, should actually be able to get all this money from use of the air. So why don't we actually treat it as something that belongs to all of us and that people actually actually have to pay for in order to use? Uh, It just, it seems to make common sense. And like you said, it's something that's possibly more politically viable uh, in option in order to, to pass these things. Maybe so. Well, let's um, let's pivot the conversation now to, to talking a little bit about the issue of motivation, uh, because this always comes up. You know, if you're paying people for nothing, does that mean that they work less hours? Would that have negative impacts on productivity? I, I think Ted and I are pretty sympathetic to the idea that it wouldn't necessarily have to be a problem, but people are concerned about this. So maybe you could tell us, like, what is the research and the empirical evidence out there suggest about what happens when you start giving people this basic income? Oh, sure. There are actually a lot of very interesting productivity effects uh, from this I've looked at. Just think of how how much productivity is lost by people hating their jobs. Like if if you're in a job that you hate, you're you're not going to be very productive at it. And there's people actually who don't have a job at all who could actually like that job, they could want that job, but they can't get it because the job is filled by someone who hates it. And the person who hates it has to keep it because it's the only way to get an income. And they're worried that if they lose it, they won't be able to find another one. But to the extent that there's monitoring on the job, right? I mean, people just have no choice but to do their job, right? I mean, some office jobs, you can goof off on the internet all day. I'm just not really convinced that people hating their job leads them to doing a worse job at their job in many cases. That that line of reasoning doesn't quite track for me because... Um, if you are doing a job that you hate, but that pays you, ostensibly the reason it's paying you is because you're adding some value. And what you might like doing is like sitting at home and playing your guitar. You ah, might really, really like that. See, but so this, I'm this not we sure need to that... actually look into motivation. Like uh, this is one of those really interesting findings uh, from looking at what people, what motivates people. And I've written about this before too, when it comes to extrinsic motivation and intrinsic motivation. And what we think is that by paying people more and more, that they do a better and better job. 
And this actually varies according to the type of work that it is. So if you're in a job that doesn't require much creative thought, if it's something that's more mechanical in nature, then paying people more actually can improve performance. But those are exactly the kind of jobs that are perfect for technology to take. So the, the jobs that we have left are these jobs that are more creative thinking. It's, it's jobs that don't follow this. And the thing, when you look at this kind of job, increasing income uh, as a reward for this actually reduces performance. When you, when you want to think creatively, you can actually change the way uh, that people think about things by providing this reward. And so you find that actually removing this uh, extrinsic motivation from this actually does increase productivity. And uh, another finding that I thought was really interesting is that um, just the simple ability to say no to something actually increases your uh, commitment to the task. Uh, this was a, a psychological experiment where they, um, they basically they gave, someone a, they gave someone a task and they they had no option to say no to it. It was just here's your task, you know, do it. And they spent about five minutes on the task on average. And then in another condition, they said, okay, here's your task, but you don't have to do it. And in that condition, on average, they spent seven minutes doing it. So just giving people the option to not do something increases productivity. So again, when you're looking at jobs that people feel that they have no choice but to be in, it does affect productivity. There's there's lost productivity from this. So we, we want to create the situation where people choose to do the jobs that they're in. Right. Well, and I think that has its own value, too. I mean, just giving people more choice over their own experience seems like, you know, just like a human value on its own. And that's one of the things I'm most worried about poverty in the future, because technology is making everybody's lives better. It is making everything cheaper. It is making it easier to survive and not die. But I feel like growing income inequality, this is something we've talked about in the podcast before, one of the biggest problems with it is that it reduces the amount of choice you have over your life when you're at the bottom end of this. So the idea that we could use basic income to increase people's choice, and that might leave the people who do work more motivated, um, that makes a lot of sense to me. Well, and another part of this, too, is that by giving people a basic income, you know, they can actually do part time work as well. Like right now, it's, it's like we force people to do 40 hours or not. Or, you know, you have your part-time jobs where it's this or that. But with basic income, you can actually, you know, do more stuff like your Uber, your open, your sharing economy stuff. It's it's stuff that's saying, well, I just want to earn a little bit here and there. You can do that with a basic income, but you can't do that right now. And another thing with a basic income that you would actually be able to start doing is you can actually start doing stuff for free. You, you can start doing what you want to do that might necessarily not result in any additional income. You know, people volunteer right now uh, to a great degree. And that's another thing, too, is that when you look at, say, just the amount of time that we put into volunteering just at food banks alone in the United States, is that 2 million people are volunteering over 8 million hours of their time every month in the United States just to fight hunger. And so just imagine 8.4 million hours spent on other things other than fighting hunger when people could just buy their food. I mean, there's so much stuff going on right now that is unpaid that people don't necessarily recognize as work that 
is work? You know, why is it that it's not work when you're raising your own kid, but it is work when you're raising somebody else's kid? Well, and I mean, there is an answer to that question, though, right? Which is that, again, just like the, you know, the market is choosing to reward people that wouldn't otherwise do something, right? I mean, you, you just assume that people already want to raise their own kid. They're already, they're in fact, legally bound to raise their own kid, right? So that's why we don't reward that, because we assume people are going to do that anyways, right? And that's why we don't reward a lot of people's charity work or artistic pursuits or things that are inherently rewarding, uh, because we assume that they don't need extra monetary incentive to do it, because they will do it anyway. People seem to do this stuff anyway, right? Right, but the, the thing is about, uh, like, saying a, a nanny versus watching your own kid is that a lot of these things exist because there's no other choice. Like, you can't just raise your own kid if you don't have a job. So you have to go out and get a job. And then the government comes in, often with, like, child care expenses and stuff and says, okay, we'll pay for your child care so that you can work. And at the same time, they're giving that money to someone to watch their kid for them. And that's work. So there's this money that doesn't need to be exchanging hands, but we make it because there's no other choice than it not to. So if people actually have income separate from work, then they can actually avoid that and actually save that money. And again, that's, you know, that can be looked at as an elimination of jobs. Right. That's exactly what I was going to say. That's interesting because that sounds like an improvement of somebody's life, um, but it will be registered, you know, in the productivity statistics as a lost job. The way that the statistics will see that is that that's people working fewer hours and having less productivity. Right. And that's actually part of, uh, you know, the difficulty in the economy that we're going towards right now is it's harder and harder to put a number on the work that's being done. Like someone who's spending their time on Wikipedia, uh, actually creating Wikipedia, which has been created by many, many people. And this is something that's worth billions of dollars. It's it has a very large value but it's not actually, it doesn't actually have a number attached to it and people aren't getting paid to do it, but there's definite value being created. So same thing with like any creative commons in general too. Like every article I write is free. Uh, I just add it to the creative commons and people can use it however they want to. This is, it's still work. It's just, I'm not being paid necessarily to do it. So with that way, I'm not necessarily showing up in the productivity statistics either, even though I am creating work, creating value and creating and uh, adding to the commons. So we want to create this world where we're more able to add to the commons and we're actually able to do this work that doesn't necessarily have to have a price attached in order to do it. Right. People don't have to be paid to do this stuff. They want to do it. So we actually want to encourage that and we want to allow that. Um, so it seems to me like the way we're responding to the charge that, oh, well, productivity is going to go down uh, and people are going to be less motivated to work under a basic income system is like, well, yeah, but we're okay with that because the things we're calling work isn't everything that should qualify and the things that we're calling productivity isn't everything that should qualify. And so because the monetary system is so bad at measuring what really is work and what really adds cultural value, uh, we should just expect that motivation to do crappy corporate jobs for money is going to go down and people are going to be spending more time creating dematerialized goods that don't show up. Well, although they do show up like, okay, so Scott's articles, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, like, 
your articles are hosted on a lot of different sites, right? And those sites are serving ads, are they not, right? And you're driving pe- traffic there? Well, so- I, I, most of the stuff I write is on uh, Medium, and Medium does not have ads, no. Sure, they're more like a, a pre-Twitter. you know Twitter. I mean, they're started by the guy who started Twitter. A lot of these platforms that are created right now aren't necessarily monetized uh, immediately as well. So, yeah, you can say I'm adding to the value that they see. But again, I'm not necessarily seeing that. Like, uh, I use Patreon in order to earn some money from this. Uh, and, you know, I'm building up my own basic income through my writing. But if I didn't put that, if I didn't say anything about that, then I wouldn't be earning anything. But it, the articles are still the exact same thing. So Right. And they're yeah. adding to some theoretical valuation of medium that may happen in the future, uh, right. which, which you'll see no part of, but under no a, a scheme that taxed medium at a high rate and then put that money into a basic income for everybody, it would, it would come back around. But via Patreon, right, there's still people out there that are saying, we're willing to pay to have Scott Santens out there writing articles. Like, so some people are willing to assign a dollar figure to your work. And it's just that, you know, you have to use this new platform, Patreon, to chase that money, right? Right. And, and I also think Patreon is a great example, too, of what's possible in a future with basic income to add income to it. You know, if you have people that are doing this work and they're doing it, say, for free, they're not going to charge somebody to do it, but they're doing it. And if people like that work, then they can give them money on top of their basic income. So you can actually, again, with basic income as a floor, it makes it a lot easier to build up off that floor. And when it comes to like the digital economy with the sharing economy, there's a lot of ways to earn income on top of it in ways that you don't actually even have to necessarily charge in advance for it really changes the way that we that we do these things so let's just assume that for the most part we're we're pretty receptive to this idea i mean you're obviously an advocate but i think ted and i are receptive to basic Mm -hmm. income as as a way of dealing with all these widely varying cultural problems of poverty and so on what's our actual future likeliness of achieving this goal i mean it seems like it's sort of a trendy topic right now i'm seeing it more and more on the internet uh obviously i assume your subreddit has been growing uh is this an indication that this could actually get some real political power behind it or is it the kind of thing that's going to be just impossible to ever get through because my concern about it is that obviously, if, again, if you have the very wealthy that are paying for this, these are the same kinds of people that have the power to stop something like this. You always, oh, have, sure. to, you always have to make the cynical acknowledgement that that's a, a factor here. And I also worry about, you know, if we're talking about replacing all of the current government programs that we have out there, that's a lot of jobs and institutions. Right. Well, and there's a whole wing of the political system that's very entrenched that considers those major achievements. So any dismantling of them, even if it's for something better, is going to be, I think, tricky to sell to those folks. Yeah, right. So since this oh, sure. is, yeah. So since this is a podcast about the future, what do you actually see as the, the future pathway to achieving this? And, and what would you give your odds? Uh, Well, you know, I would say that basic income has a 100% chance of happening at some point in the future. Now, the trick is how quickly can we get it done? Like, can we get this done within the next five years or 10 years, or is it not going to happen for the next 20 years or 30 years? And I do think that we can do this within 10 years if we're able to really start organizing and if the effects of technology do actually impact 
as it possibly can. Like in my trucks article, if you're suddenly looking at 10 million people very quickly unemployed, that's going to have a big effect. And I only touched upon the trucking industry in that one and its effect in other industries. But what about these, all these other things? What about the effects of various artificial intelligence, uh, you know, bits of software that are focusing on certain things? One of the artificial intelligence that's come out that I've read about, it's fascinating, is uh, Amelia. And uh, Amelia is just something that's focused on the IT world. It's an AI that's trained and uses machine learning protocols to learn how to respond to calls and emails. And the, what she can't handle is flagged. And then as someone who's a human actually handles this call. And then again, the AI learns how to handle this call for the future. So it's amazing how quickly uh, and how much this one AI has done so far where it's been tried. So it, it was tried in, you know, in, a, in a beta form at a company. And after a week, it was doing 10% of all calls. And after a month, it was doing 40% of all calls. And after two months, it was doing 60% of all calls. So in the estimate is that this Amelia AI could handle about 60% of all these IT calls. And therefore, you need that fewer amount of staff to handle this. And you're looking at, you know, I think it was an estimate of 250 million jobs worldwide that can be eliminated from this one piece of AI. And so you're looking at AI after AI, and they're focused on specific tasks. And so when we have these millions of people being put out of work and faster than the amount of any new jobs that are created, and it's even more difficult, the new jobs that are being created pay less, we're entering into this direction where I don't see any way out of doing a basic income. It's just a matter of how nasty things are going to get before we do it. And I would hope that we can get it done in advance of things getting too nasty. And that's what my goal is, is I'm trying to advance the window closer because I think it needs to happen as soon as possible. We would ultimately, though, need the incentives to align in such a way that it becomes clearly in the interest of wealthy institutions to do this as well, which I I think could be the case. Right, because the alternate is consumer collapse, right? I mean, if we're really talking about eliminating that many jobs that quickly, people aren't going to be able to buy things. Well, Oren, I I sometimes think, see if this makes sense. Like if you're Walmart, right, and you have the power to lay off a huge portion of your workforce... You may be reluctant to just do that all at once, barring some excuse like economic bad times. But you might just engineer some of those. Well, so essentially, like if you're keeping workers on that you could be automating and you're not because you don't want like the massive public relations disaster that would be you like all at once firing your entire workforce. Exactly. Then you, I mean, you're essentially already paying those people a basic income just yourself unilaterally as that company. And so if the, (laughs) if larger society can foot the bill for you and make it so that you can now move ahead with your automation goals, maybe that would be in your interest as a company. Now, of course, you're obviously going to be paying taxes for this as well. So, but the math has to work out. It has to be cheaper for you to to pay your taxes than to pay all those people. Right, exactly. It's a very interesting uh, way to look at that, both from the standpoint that people are essentially already being paid basic incomes, especially if you look at the fact that people right now, on average, uh, in an eight-hour job, actually do about five to six hours of work. Uh, if you look at it that way, there's all sorts of work that we're paying for that we don't need to be paying for. And you're right, you're totally right, I think, about it being a PR issue. It's, it's crazy when these different 
Advance has come up. I like the Applebee's one when they introduced the tablets. And Applebee's said, uh, oh, we're not cutting any jobs. We're actually increasing productivity and enabling you know, better customer service or whatever. And so they sell it that way because they have to. Like, you, you can't just <laughs> introduce something and say, this enabled us to fire 20% of our workforce. How awesome is that? You can't do that as a company that actually wants to be considered in any way a good company. So uh, you know, you've got like McDonald's who could actually eliminate, you know, there's a, there's a hamburger making machine. They could use uh, touchscreen ordering at drive-thrus. They could use self-ordering kiosks inside the McDonald's. Like McDonald's could cut a huge amount of their workforce, but they're not going to do that right now. So again, this is another reason where by just cutting that link and enabling people, enabling employers to release their employees that they don't actually need, then we could actually see a huge jump in productivity just from the, all these jobs lost alone. And then people would actually not be thrown into poverty because they'd have a basic income and they could actually either, you know, they go back to school, they could retrain, you know, they could get a job at the pace that they want. They could decide, uh, you know, I want to look for a specific job. They could actually spend, you know, a year, two years or something finding it instead of having to get the first job that they can find. All this stuff would be possible once you cut that link between work and income. And again, when it comes to the possibility of this, when it comes to how you can actually get people to vote for their best interests instead of the interests of the rich always being represented, again, with Alaska, you have an 80% turnout when it's related to the dividend. And the reason that the rich does so well and the, and the system itself is so rigged in the favor of the top is because people aren't voting. There's no such thing as a 90% voter turnout that votes in favor of the rich. <laughs> that doesn't ha what happens is because people aren't voting. So if you can actually get something on the, the bill for people to actually talk to their legislators and support, they're able to vote on, especially if it's on like a ballot. If you, if you look at a ballot and it says, do you want $1,000 a month? Yes or no? <laughs> Yeah. People are going to vote yes. I'll show up for that vote. <laughs> right. Or we're going sh to show up for that. That's going to be an election that a lot of people are going to show up at. Right. This is the idea that, you know, some politicians will get behind this because it's just it gets you a lot of popularity, as we mentioned earlier, to be, you know, on the side of giving people money. Yeah. I mean, it's like when George W. gave out those tax checks, right? That was like huge bump for him. Right. And that was, right. you know, uh, that wasn't even an ongoing program. That was just like a one time. Oh, we got a little bit too much money this year as a check. People love that. And it was an effective stimulus, too. It was just a one time small check yeah. and it worked effectively as a stimulus. So, you know, just imagine if we did that same thing every month, be a huge stimulus program. Well, that's not a good way to sell it. Let's not say that, right? <laughs> that's going to turn 50 uh, percent of the country against it immediately. <laughs> To have a stimulus program? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that that's a bad word to a lot of people. I mean, certainly there are a lot of people, if you described the Bush strategy that way, they'd, they'd take offense. Um, <laughs> I think I'm not one of those people, so I can't represent their viewpoint all that well, but I definitely think that viewpoint's out there. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is so interesting because it does seem like something that could do a lot of good and that could achieve some goals for people both on the left and the right, while 
being more efficient than what we have now. And yet it seems so politically difficult to achieve. But maybe a strategy like the Alaskan strategy, where you start with something like resources that are kind of a shared patrimony and move from there toward the taxation. (laughs) Yeah, there's actually a bill out there right now that I think would work well as a step towards it. This is the Healthy um, Economic Security Act of, of 2015. This is actually, it's a carbon tax and dividend. So this is one of those things where we would actually add a price to polluting the air and everyone in the United States with a social security number would get the same amount of money as a result as their dividend on this. And so this is a partial basic income that people can actually call up their representatives right now and tell them to support it. And if we could actually get something like this done, if we could actually get a national small Alaska dividend in place, then suddenly there's that many people that are used to getting an amount of money that has nothing to do with work. And there's evidence what has happened with this. You know, how are people using it? It would be an experiment where people would say, oh, well, look, they're doing good things with it. It's helping the economy. Uh, A source of data, right. All these good things are happening from this. And it would be that much more difficult to fight a larger amount as being a bad idea. So uh, it's these kind of steps forward that I think are entirely possible. And it's just a matter of getting the word out, I feel. I, I feel if more people even knew about this, then they'd be more likely to support it. I mean, you're going to call up your representative and say, hey, I would like you to support this bill that pays me a check every month. That'd be great. I think that's a great, great way to go forward on this. Well, on that note, I think we'll uh, we'll bring our conversation to an end. But uh, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join us. Hey, thanks for having me. Is there anything final you want to say or share before we end? Oh, yeah, sure. Just uh, like to let people know that they can help me build up my own basic income, which I'm doing on patreon.com slash Scott Santons. Uh, I'm about 70% of the way there right now. I hope to get there by the end of the year. And then after that, once I reach my goal, then other people who have actually taken the same pledge to uh, build up a basic income, uh, I'll be able to give to them and people will be able to help them as well. This is my way of crowdfunding basic incomes uh, on an individual level right now, immediately. And again, please, you know, everyone's welcome to come by reddit.com slash r slash basic income. That's, again, I'm a moderator of that. And there's many, many, many articles there for people to learn more Uh, on a constant daily basis. There's more to learn. Great. Uh, Thanks for uh, talking to us today, Scott. Thank you for having me. All right. Take care. Take care. Okay, thank you for listening to our interview with Scott Santons about uh, basic income. And I hope you found that interesting. We'll have some links to some of the things he was talking about on the uh, website below the post. Uh, Before we go, we wanted to mention a few things. One is that we now have an iOS app, courtesy of our friends over at Smart Drug Smarts. And you can download that on the Apple App Store. Second, we have uh, Twitter. Our handle is RTF underscore podcast. So tweet at us with your questions and comments. Yeah, tell us uh, what you'd like to see us uh, do a show about or, or give us corrections. We like to hear from you guys. Another thing that we've been mentioning is we have an upcoming Kickstarter for our graphic novel that we are making with the fantastic artist Cecilia Latella. It's called Let Go. And you can find out more about it and sign up for an early 
uh, notification at letgocomic.com. There's a bunch of art up there, and the Kickstarter is going to be going live on August 31st. In addition, we could really benefit from some more reviews on iTunes. So if you're an iTunes user, if that's how you get your podcast, go on over there and uh, give us a rating if you can. We really, really appreciate that. That helps us get the word out. And uh, continue to email us or contact us in whatever way you find convenient. Yeah, we really like to do uh, feedback. uh, And we've been doing a little bit of replying to listener uh, emails. We want to do more of that, but we got to get more emails in order to reply to them. So uh, please reach out. We love to hear from you. Uh, Thanks for listening. Thanks. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.